very large, heavy set man in a Batman suit. Like, fully decked out, like, this guy was Batman. And Gavin, of course, says, Mom, look, it's Batman! You know? He's just amazed, it's Batman. And Batman keeps walking, and I roll the window down, and he can't turn around in his car seat, he's getting frustrated. And he says, Mom, give me Batman! <laughs> and she's like, Well, Gavin, I, I can't give you Batman. He's, you know, and that, firstly, that's not Batman, you know. But I can't give you Batman. No, Mom, give me Batman. You know, the two-year-old mind can't comprehend the fact that Mom can't give him something that he wants in the moment, right? Have you guys ever experienced that? You have expectations of somebody and they just can't quite deliver on what you want of them. I felt bad for my son who was looking for Batman, Batman. Batman. So uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about that expectations and the broken beliefs of, of who or what we can hope in and how we can hope in them. And uh, we're going to take our text from Mark chapter 11. It'll be on the screen or you can read it on your iPhones or fake iPhones. That was a little dig at my wife. We have a war going on. She's the Android. I'm the iPhone. But right now I have the mic. So... <laughs> Today's a different kind of sermon. We're going to walk through this, uh, this story, this Palm Sunday story, step by step. Um, but we're going to take our key scripture from the middle of our text, Mark 11, verses 12 through 14. And it says here, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, speaking of Jesus, he was, he was hungry. Everybody say hungry. hungry. John say hungry. and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf he went to see if he could find anything on it and when he came to it he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs and he said to it may no one ever eat fruit from you again and his disciples heard it Turn to your neighbor and say, where are your figs? See a smirk on some of your faces? It's okay, we're going to get through this. This is probably one of the most pivotal chapters in the book of Mark. Thought-provoking. There's possibly no other chapter that gives us as clear of a mirror image into our own lives and souls. A window into who we are in our hearts in this passage. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus comes riding in on a donkey and people were waving palm branches ready to crown him king. And at the end of the chapter, they're plotting to murder him. Why? What changed? What could make people change their minds and plot and plan to murder someone? Especially somebody like Jesus who tells stories and heals the sick. He's a good guy. And these are the good people too, the religious people who have their stuff together. What would make these upstanding citizens flip a 180? Why? And in the middle, sandwiched between these two action sequences that we're going to talk about, is this random story about a fig tree. What in the world does that have to do with anything? What if I told you that this fig tree... 
is the key to unlocking the mystery of this entire chapter and discovering why people changed their response to Jesus so drastically. Why they exchanged crowning him as king and placing him on a throne to putting on his head a crown of thorns and placing him on a cross. This passage explains the fickleness within my heart and your heart and how good God-fearing people can go from crowning to crucifying their Savior. And that same key, I believe, speaks to your life and my life in profound ways today. If you miss this, you could end up misunderstanding the heart of the king and his kingdom. And as life happens to you as it does to all of us, you could find yourself becoming unfruitful, unfulfilled, frustrated, burnt out, angry, overwhelmed with life, even bitter and angry at God and focused on the wrong goals and priorities and missing out on the heart of the gospel and what Christ wants to do in your life. What is the mystery of the fig tree? And why does that sound like a Hardy Boys novel? (laughs) And how does this strange story apply to my life today? But like Julie Andrews, great philosopher, said, let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. So the beginning of the chapter, Jesus and his disciples are heading to Jerusalem. And he, he gets a colt. He has his disciples go and get this donkey. And, and he starts going, heading toward Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Everybody's heading toward Jerusalem at this point. But he comes in riding on a donkey. It's not your normal kingly entry. It's not Aladdin, you know, Prince Ali, fabulous he, Ali Ababwa with 75 golden camels and the monkeys. He's got the monkeys, you know. It's not that thing. It's just a guy on a donkey, right? But this is loaded with meaning because it symbolizes this, the way of Jesus' kingdom, the, the tone of it. It's a kingdom of humility and peace. He comes riding in lowly on a donkey and After years of captivity and promise in this Old Testament of looking at the prophets and what they were saying would happen, these people have held on to this hope that one day our Savior would come. And as it's recorded in one of the prophets, Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Rejoice, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly. And riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he rides into the city, and this moment is just pregnant with promise. And they wave palm branches, the the sign of the revolution. We're going to enthrone him as king. This is the king we've been waiting for, our Messiah. The one who will set everything right. He's come to fulfill our hopes and deliver our dreams. Everything we've longed for and prayed for and begged God to give us is finally here, embodied in this guy on a donkey. He's gonna, what's he going to do? He's going to reclaim the, the throne for us. He's going to overthrow the Rome's oppressive rule. He's going to help us worship God in our way and give us our best life now. It's going to be all great. It's going to be awesome. And let's be honest, I think... We all want a king like that, don't we? Someone to hear our cries with justice, um, to deliver on campaign promises, give us the life we want and dream of. Don't we all hope for that? Yeah. I think we do. Right? 
And, and I, I think, like, at least we hope that things can get better. Maybe not an actual king, but, but something we hope in that has the power to change our lives. We think that maybe, maybe for you it's a new job. A new job would give me the finances I need, which would give me the security that I long for, or my father-in-law's approval, finally, or the image that I dreamed of myself having in high school. Whatever that thing is, unless, unless you're just cynical and negative and burnt out on life, we're always hoping. We're always putting our hope in something or someone, and we want to be fulfilled. We want to be fruitful. We want to be happy. We sing songs about it or pay somebody like Pharrell millions of dollars to sing songs about being happy. It's a natural part of our makeup. We want to hope good things can happen, don't we? And can can they? Sure. Sure they can. But most often, I think what we do is we put our weight of our hope on people or situations, or even ourselves and demand that they deliver. It's almost like we establish these belief systems, right? And what's at the center of them? Us and our desires and our hopes. And We, we want to get what we hope. We are all hungry. We are all looking for someone to deliver some figs to us. And what happens when our hopes fail us? You guys ever been there? It's not pretty, is it? Have you ever been crushed under the weight of someone else's plans for you or their expectations? Maybe a, maybe a boss at a job or a parent or a spouse or your kids or some, you know, children who want you to bring them Batman, you know. Now, mom, come on. And on the flip side, I think we, the, the expectors, like we are often let down by life. That's why we have conflict. That's why we grasp and fight and grapple and I've heard three or four people tell me in the last month, all conflict is unmet expectations. There's, there's some truth in that, right? We have these expectations, and what happens when people let us down? Or the relationship falls apart, or the job doesn't pan out. That politician ended up not bringing the change they promised. We're left holding our, our empty, lifeless hopes in our hands. And some people give up on life altogether at that point. Have you seen that? Some people become cynical, bitter. Some people become suicidal because they've lost hope. Other people switch their hope onto something else. Well, that didn't work, but this thing, this will fix it. This will set everything right. And our problem is twofold. I'm not a crook. (laughs) Sorry. Problem is twofold that we put the weight of our expectancy on things that can't deliver. Or we have the wrong expectations of the one who can. The good news today is that Jesus is actually the one who can bear the weight of your expectation. In fact, he's the only one who can truly deliver the promises he makes. And this king, he's, he's worthy of our hope. He's the king of kings. In this moment that we see Jesus riding in the city, we find him on the road heading to Jerusalem. What's he doing? He's inaugurating his kingdom. He's setting it up. He's, he's about to pay for you and my to have an abundant life with his very own blood. He knows where he's heading and what he's doing. He loves you. He wants you to have abundant life. But he's the king, right? 
He knows what's best, and he gives us what we need when we need it. I think often we think we know what we need and when we need it, right? But he knows what would crush you and twist your heart and seduce you away from the life that you seek in him. Tim Keller says this. He says, God will always give you exactly what you would have prayed for if you knew everything he knows. But these people who are waving palm branches, shouting Hosanna, they're looking for a different kind of Messiah. They had expectations. Their idea of this coming messianic king was the one who would make everything right, right now. Right here. The one who would deliver heaven on earth. The one who would take our sorrow and give us joy. The one who would take our oppression and give us freedom, take our poverty and give us the riches of heaven. They want all the promises of the Old Testament prophets without the necessary process to get there. They want the throne without the cross. Eternal life without death and resurrection. They want the kingdom without the king. Like the old song says, they want it all and they want it now. To them, Jesus is embodying their vision of the kingdom in their timing and their way. But here's the deal about Jesus. He will not be tamed or tied down by our missed expectations. Why? He's the king. He has a plan. And he knows what's best. Do you believe that? Do you trust him? Right now in your life, do you think he actually has a plan for your life and that he cares for you in your situation? We're all hungry. But where are your figs? Where are you looking for them? Are you going to him or somewhere else? And he arrives at the center of the city and he steps down from his donkey onto the crunch of palm leaves that people have laid at his feet. And he walks around and looks at the temple. He looks around and sees everything that's going on. Can you imagine what he saw? This temple, I mean, he's hearing the cry of thousands of people as they worship and pray. And the clanking and bartering of the money changers. He sees the sacrificing and the activity and the worship and commerce and culture. What do you think he felt as he saw all of that? To understand what he saw and what he felt when he went to the temple, we have to understand what a huge thing this was for people, especially at this time in their history. The temple wasn't just a nice church building. It was a lot more than that. Solomon had built this original temple. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Over 70 or 7.5 billion pounds of gold. That's more than America has at Fort Knox went into the original temple. 100,000 talents. But that temple had been destroyed over four or 500 years ago by Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, when the Jews were led into captivity. And they laid down and wept at the rivers of Babylon, remembering Zion. Uh, why had that happened? Do you guys remember? Why had they been led away in captivity? Disobedience. They were conquered. Why? I thought they were God's people. What happened? Yeah, they started worshiping something else, right? They exchanged the worship of God for the worship of idols. Something totally different. And, and they turned their back on God. So God removed His protection and He let their false temples be destroyed. And for hundreds of years they said, if we could just get back there, if we could just 
be holy enough, if we could be pure enough, if we could have no idols. Have you ever prayed those prayers? I'll do anything. If you'll get me off this roller coaster, I will go to China and be a missionary. Anybody? Maybe that's just me. But this temple was entrenched deep in their psyche. Then, around the time Jesus was a baby, Herod the Tetrarch, one of the greatest architects that ever lived, rebuilt the temple. It wasn't Solomon's temple, but it was amazing. And I'll skip the quotes about it. But basically, if you could combine in your, in your thoughts to contextualize this, uh, the idea of Congress and Wall Street and Harvard and the Statue of Liberty all into one, you'll kind of have some idea of what the temple represented and the ideals it embodied to the people of Jesus' time. It was a big deal. And to these people who had been held captive by foreign powers, beat down, slandered, enslaved, and robbed of their dignity, it was more than a temple. It was a picture of salvation. When all else was falling apart, you're having a bad day at work, you can look up at the top of the city and see the temple and say, one day it won't always be like this. That temple was essentially embodied the hope they were holding on to. And it almost functioned as a sort of savior. And Jesus steps into that temple, into that moment. He lets the full force and weight of that moment hit him. Takes it all in. And the moment builds and it crescendos and nothing happens. Strangest thing, he just turns around and walks away. Goes back to Bethany. After this big march into the city, triumphal entry, he just leaves. Goes back and sleeps on it. And the next day as he's walking into Jerusalem, he and his disciples, they see this fig tree that we just read about. And normally the story goes something like this. Jesus was hungry. He's kind of in a bad mood. He sees, sees this fig tree. But because there's no fruit on it, he curses the fig tree. Obvious lesson this morning, God hates figs. Right? Or don't eat fig newtons. Or you better have enough faith. That's, that's the one I, I heard a lot growing up. But this story goes a lot deeper. Think, think about it. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And what's at the center in the city? The temple. Yeah. And the fig tree in the first century Jewish culture is the symbol of Jewish leadership and authority. All the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, all refer to the fig tree as a type of Israel and spiritual authority. Tim Keller says in King's Cross, the tree had become a perfect metaphor for Israel. And beyond that, for those claiming to be God's people... That do not bear fruit for him. Jesus is on his way into the heart of the city. To the temple where he's going to essentially declare that the temple is irrelevant. And that people have false hope in this broken system. And on the way he curses the fig tree which is the symbol of Jewish religious establishment. If you go around cursing the symbol of religious establishment. The religious establishment isn't going to go for that. Right? I mean, this, this is... What does Jesus do on his way into the city? He burns the flag. Correct? It's a loaded religious symbol. I mean, whew, he curses the fig tree. Cursing a fig tree could get you killed. And what, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that a fig tree without fruit is useless to a hungry person in the same way that this temple in Jerusalem that didn't bear spiritual fruit was useless. He's saying some things about what's coming. Why? Because it had turned from being God-centered to placing itself in the center and pushing God out of the way. 
And now God was bringing judgment on it. Instead of the temple representing God, it became a God unto itself. What their ancestors had done years before by worshiping false gods outside of their religion, now they were doing by setting up their religion as a false god in the name of God. So the temple system had essentially become an idol. A belief system that lets people think they can control God. If we do this many sacrifices, then He has to restore Israel. If we're this holy, right? If we live pure, religiously devoted lives of prayer and fasting and worship, then He has to save us. If we pay our tithes, we'll get the good spot at the mall. If this, then that. Their relationship wasn't with God anymore. Their relationship was with a sky fairy. And faith was just a series of transactions. It was all about them. Are we tracking? How does that happen? How does something as beautiful and sacred as the temple, something that used to be an avenue for God to bless His people, change so much? How? Why have they stopped looking to God as the source of of blessing and perverted and twisted and warped a system to get their own blessings in their own way. I mean, it is no longer a contact point for God. It's become an idol. How could that be? How can a good thing that God sets up as a blessing for us, a way of experiencing His goodness, become an idol? It happens all the time, doesn't it? Has God ever given you blessings? Experiences with God? Experiences in life? Relationships, jobs, gifts. And they're all just pictures of His grace. And from what I read in the good book, God's blessings are meant to be ways of experiencing Him and placing our hope more fully in Him and trusting Him to bring us closer to Him. Yet inevitably, what happens? If we're not careful, we end up letting our eyes focus on the gifts more than the giver. It's like... It's kind of like, fellas, maybe some of you can identify with this. It's kind of like if you got an engagement ring, right? You get down one knee and, and you propose, right? And hopefully she says yes. And hopefully if she says no, you're not in front of a thousand people at a stadium, right? And she takes it. But just imagine, like, imagine a few weeks later you look at her and her hair starts falling out and her skin starts turning gray. She's becoming Smeagol, Right? My precious, right? <laughs> she forsakes the giver in lieu of the gift, right? This thing that was supposed to represent your relationship and draw you closer together all of a sudden became the center of her focus in her life. Why? You aren't the center of her affections anymore, and it's changing her from the inside out. That's exactly what we do with God. All the time. It happens to us all the time. And I think most of the time, we hardly even notice it's happening. It creeps up on us. God gives us good things and we turn them into ultimate things and they become our focus instead of Him. Question for you, real quick. What are some of the good things God blesses us with that we can turn into ultimate things? Children. Yeah. Kids. What are some of the things that, that you get, like in your heart, from your children? Love. love. Yeah. Where's that love ultimately from? God. But He sends it to us through our kids, right? 
It's beautiful. What else? Mm. Awesome. She would do anything legal to help her children. It's awesome. Yeah, what else? What else does God pour into our lives? Besides the kids, what, what's that? Relationships. Relationships in general, right? How about that significant other? Husband, wife. What are some of the things that we receive in our hearts, some of our hopes and stuff that we, that we can put on, on them, on our spouses? Happiness. Happiness. Security. Yeah. They can become that for us, right? That source of security. But here's the deal. Where's the security actually coming from? God. And he's giving it to us through this beautiful gift of grace that we have in a spouse. It's wonderful. But inevitably, what generally tends to happen to all of us all the time, we're always fighting this kind of downward pull to turn them into the source of our security, the source of our love. The source of our approval. Whatever it may be that we get. It's the same with everything, isn't it? They're gifts from our gracious Father. Meant to draw us closer to Him, the giver. But we begin to look to them as the source. And then what happens when the sources don't deliver what we believe they should? Somebody else gets a raise at work. Right? And that job has become the source of my security. The source of my whatever. Right? Source of my income, provision. I need that for my family. Why did he get the why did he get the raise? Why did she get the raise? You see how that happens? We're not trusting God anymore. We're trusting in this job. We're trusting in something else, this gift of God's grace. And in our eyes, it's become the source of our hope. What happens when that when that happens to us, when our world is threatened? How do we respond? Well, we either turn our hearts back to the source of life, the giver of gifts, or we turn our hearts away from Him. We either hail Hosanna and place Him back on the throne of our hearts, or we cry, crucify Him, and we continue our life elsewhere. We, we look for our life in the broken systems that are doomed to fail us over and over because they are gifts of grace, but they're not the source. And that's exactly what happens in the story. The next thing that happens is Jesus walks up the hill toward the temple, man on a mission. He's got fire in his eyes. And what does he do when he arrives? Jesus goes mean and wild. We see this, we see this side to Jesus that we haven't really seen in the story this far. This king who rode up on a donkey yesterday, the symbol of peace and humility, starts turning over tables and driving the four ex-traders out of the temple. And there's this what the heck moment. What happened? It seems a bit extreme, doesn't it? I mean, they're just doing their job. But we have to understand, not only had they exchanged their relationship with God for this temple, that represented a systematic religious approach to getting what they wanted, how they wanted, when they wanted this, this idol. But that religious system had begun to actually corrupt them, corrupt them like the ring corrupted Smeagol or your lovely spouse. And you know what? You know what else finally begins to happen? This is this is the worst part. It begins to destroy others as well. It's a snowball effect. 
It's the little yeast that raises the whole loaf. This temple had once been a place not just for the, the people of God to connect with God and find hope in Him and offer sacrifices and get forgiveness, and, but it was a, meant to be a light for the Gentiles. A place where believers who had not yet converted to the faith could still come to worship from all over the world in the Gentile court. A place of hope and righteousness and connection with God. And that temple had become more like a modern day Disneyland. Where you slice a pizza costs 50 bucks and you wait for three hours for a ride that lasts 15 seconds. And you end up at the end of the day with a headache from hot dehydration and empty wallet. Do I sound better? But seriously, as disillusioned as I can be with the Magic Kingdom, many people left the Temple of Jerusalem feeling gypped and disenfranchised, pickpocketed by their own religious leaders, ripped off by the money changers whose God had become capitalistic enterprise. It's heartbreaking for me. The Temple in Jerusalem held so much promise and potential for people to have a genuine, powerful encounter with God. It was a gigantic evidence of God's grace. But what was going on instead was pure commercialism. And God's honor, God's glory was being exchanged and sacrificed for a few dollars for people to line their pockets. I think that's why we see a side of Jesus we aren't used to in this moment. That's why Jesus quotes Isaiah and Jeremiah as he drives profiteers from the temple. And he got mean and wild and drove their idolatry out of the temple. And how did they respond? Are the onlookers excited about this revival, this grace renewal moment? It's like, yeah, go Jesus. That's awesome. Cleaning up the temple. No, right? They wanted to kill him for it. Their idol, this belief system, had become, in their minds, the source of their social status, their material payoff, their control and security, position of power. It had replaced God at the center of their life. And when Jesus showed up to clear house, their world was threatened. Their idolatry challenged. And in a very real sense, they were the fig tree. And they didn't have any figs. If you're wondering, that's what immediately led them to begin plotting and planning the murder of Jesus. Jesus came looking for their figs and found them lacking. And a few days later, the plans of the Pharisees became known. And they brought Jesus before the rulers of Israel and Rome. And the people who had chanted, Hosanna, began shouting, crucify him. And I don't know about you, but when I look at them, I get enraged. I, I think to myself, ignorant people, you guys are so foolish and fickle. So into your little world that you can't see what's going on around you, right? Plotting to destroy anyone, anything to protect your way of life. But as I point my finger at them, I realize, what, what's the old adage? I got three pointing back at me and a thumb pointing somewhere else. <laughs> I think if we're honest today, there's this fundamental truth that resides deep within the dark places of our heart. Someone once said, when we get the chance, we kill our Savior. If that's true, Why? I think what God's been showing me is that we're all like that fig tree. Metaphor for the temple. We we all have our our temples, these places in our hearts where something is being worshipped, where something rules. And oftentimes it's something besides God. Some belief system we put our hope in instead of God. Some 
great thing that he's given us, a blessing, an evidence of his grace that we've turned into an ultimate thing. What is your temple? What is your belief system that's replaced Jesus? I want you to think about that. What is that person, place, or thing that you've put your hope in? That, let's call it what it is, an idol. What's, what's that sentence that you say, if this, then everything would be alright. Then my life would be perfect. If this could happen. What is the area of your life Jesus is writing towards in this moment? Maybe it's even some moralistic reproach to God, uh, approach to God. It's also a reproach to God. An approach to God to get your spiritual points. Some religious system, even within in the guise of Christianity. Or maybe it's the licentious way you use systems to manipulate things to get your way. Maybe it's the sacrifices we make at the altar of others' opinions. That's one I struggle with. I think I mentioned it in the last four sermons I've preached. Maybe it's the way you overwork and slave away to provide some sense of security for your untrusting heart. Money, sex, addictions, religion. The the Pharisees' functional saviors were threatened, so they killed their true savior. But they missed something. The thing they couldn't see what was what he was bringing was infinitely better than the broken system that they had replaced God with. The thing the Pharisees are missing out here is the good news, the gospel. They're holding on to their temple, but the God of their temple is standing right there in front of them. They're holding on to the temple as the source to get all those things that they want. The security, the, the, the freedom, all those things. And he's saying, hey, you don't need that anymore. I am the God of the temple. And I'm here to replace it. You want me, not that. The reason the temple's obsolete is because it was never the source of forgiveness or restoration. God is the source and his plan is better. Here's the deal today, guys. Jesus is not trying to destroy them. He's not trying to destroy their lives. He's freeing them from their bondage. The slavery to a God made of stone that cannot hear them or or feel or do anything for them. One that will actually destroy their lives, not heal them. In fact, Jesus seems mean, but his meanness isn't actually mean, is it? It embodies God's righteous, holy love, his zeal for them. That whip in his hands was gracious. He was a representative of God's corrective love. Who the Lord loves, he chastens, right? And he does the same thing in our lives, doesn't he? He allows trials, temptations, struggle, strife, and he allows our belief systems to fall flat. And he shows the counterfeit gods of our life for what they really are. And when Jesus comes barging into your life with that wild look in his eyes, like maybe for some of you he's doing right now, and he's got a whip in his hands, it's not because he wants to destroy your life, but because he wants to save it. He isn't furious with anger against you. He's furious with love and longing for you. Jesus is riding toward your heart today in peace and humility to humbly yet courageously do the very hard work that we can't do ourselves to set you free. To cleanse the temple of your life. To lead you to find life fruitful and fulfilling with Him at the center. 
Do you see God's corrective love as good news? When Jesus comes to challenge the areas of your life, how do you respond? Do you get frustrated? Overwhelmed? Angry with God? Bitter? Do you miss out on the heart of the gospel and what Christ wants to do in your life? And maybe you still hear this as bad news today. But let me share with you the good news. Let's end today where we begin and look one more time at the center of this chapter. The fig tree. Say this with me. Say, I'm the fig tree. That unfruitful fig tree is a perfect picture of us without Christ. Unfruitful, unfulfilled. Jesus said, abide in me and you will what? Bear much fruit. But apart from him, we could do nothing, right? Our life apart from him is without hope. Just like that fig tree. Dead in our sins, living lives dried up from the roots. Searching desperately for something. But, th- but there is hope today. Hear me. There is hope today. This chapter begins with people crying Hosanna. And it ends with people crying, planning to murder him. And in the middle there's this tree. And this fig tree is the center of the chapter. But it's not the center of the gospel story. It points to this, this much greater tree. There is another tree that this little fig tree points to. And that that tree is the center of the gospel. Because on it, Jesus hung, soaked in blood, cursed by man and God, beaten and broken and killed for us. He became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the very righteousness of God. And yes, we are all like that fig tree apart from the work of Christ. But what is the work of Christ? That's what this week is all about, right? Good Friday, Easter is remembering, calling to memory, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, that Christ first lived a life full of fruitfulness and righteousness on our behalf. Then he took the curse for us. He became my unfruitful, dried up from the roots brokenness. Why? For me. So that we could become a tree full of fruit, made alive by the Spirit and rooted in the gospel. And today, because of His work, you can have a life that's full of fruitfulness, full of joy, full of peace, and faithfulness and godliness. And that's a blessing to everyone that comes around you. Close your eyes with me, will you? And I want you to think about this. Do you believe that today your heart can become a picture of what the temple was meant to be? place full of light and holiness and where the presence of God through the indwelling Holy Spirit can lead, can, can dwell in the midst of His people? Do you believe that you can become a place where people are connecting to God, a blessing to everyone around you? That you can boldly and fearlessly begin to face the idols in your life and know that you can overcome them. That you can break their hold on you, the addictions and the seemingly helpless situations because the Holy Spirit's God's power working in you. Do you believe that Jesus took on the weight of your idolatry so we could be free to place God once again in the center of our lives? If so, you can trust Him. 
You can trust that when he comes into the temple of your life, he will graciously drive out the things that would otherwise destroy you. But if you crown him king today for the first time or for the 5,000th time, you will know what it's like to have a life of joy and peace. God is freeing you from the tyranny of self-rule and calling you to place your trust in him. But what is the cry of your heart? Today, in this moment, are you crying out, Hosanna, this is our long-awaited king. Or who does he think he is? Will you enthrone him or reject him? Crown him or crucify him? Let's pray as the musicians come. Jesus, I thank you for showing us what your rule and reign look like. A humble king of peace riding toward our heart to save us from ourselves. <laughs> to to burn the flags of our idolatrous allegiances, to turn over the tables of our moralistic, religious approach to God, our do-it-yourself approach to success and, and fortune and fame, to drive out the thieves that would rob us of the peace and grace you were bringing. Help us to see you, God, in your overwhelming love for us. To let your grace let your grace seem all the more amazing to us today. Give us the faith to trust you and crown you king of our hearts. Give us the courage to see ourselves in light of the cross and submit our lives to you. To submit our, our relationships, our finances, our, our hopes and dreams, and all the gifts you've given us to you. And let them take up the, the space you want to in our hearts. But let, let us turn to you as a source of life. And enthrone you king of our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.